Our scripture reading today, which is found in the insert in your bulletin, is from Luke chapter 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning, and uh, I invite you to pray with me as we thank the Lord for his goodness to us and pray that the Spirit would move in this place this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you call us to follow you not as individuals, but you bring us into a people, uh, that you are making a people, that you are building your church. We thank you for these offerings. Uh, We thank you for the salvation that you've given to us and pray that that would create in us a grateful and generous spirit that we would go forth from this place to be known as a generous people, not just on this day, but throughout the rest of the week. Uh, We pray for uh, the time when we open your word that is about to take place, and we ask that the Holy Spirit would flood this place, that the comfortable would be afflicted, that the afflicted would be comforted, that even hearts may be converted this morning. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. may be seated. This is by far the nicest glass of water I've ever had. Um, Well, it's it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, One of the things that I love about being a Presbyterian is not only do we see individual churches and local congregations, but we're reminded that we are all united by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like a thread running through each of the local congregations. And so uh, it's a pleasure to be with you here this morning. I've actually not been in this sanctuary before, but I've been in the parking lot of this place before because I had to come borrow a bus uh, for a youth conference one time, and it was an adventure. Uh, so, so pulling back into this parking lot brought a lot of those thoughts um, back into my mind. But it, it's good to be here with you. Uh, there are, uh, you know, people praying for you. Uh, Nathan is, is a friend and a dear brother in the Lord. And so I, I hope that you feel encouraged about what the Lord is doing uh, here in Cordova and here specifically at Grace Community. So let's look at Luke 5, 1 through 11 this morning. And uh, once again, very thankful to be here to open up this text before you this morning. In the aftermath of World War II, 
a lot of people. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning, and uh, I invite you to pray with me as we thank the Lord for His goodness to us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning, and uh, I invite you to pray with me as we thank the Lord for His goodness to us. Despite some damage and subsequent repairs, the church still stands this very day in the original spot where it was constructed in the Middle Ages. Now, we might ask, how is it that a building like the Cologne Cathedral could survive all the turmoil and the changes throughout those decades? Well, part of the answer lies in the original vision and craftsmanship of those builders in the Middle Ages. You see, those men were not laying the foundation for just a temporary tent. They were building something that would last. They were not just thinking about their own present generation, but they were thinking about generations down the road. Like those medieval workers, the Lord Jesus is building his church. Now, his church does not primarily consist of bricks and mortars or pews and stained glass windows. His church ultimately and primarily consists of ransom souls like you and me. The Lord Jesus is building his church as an eternal monument to his mercy and his grace, and he's building it through this very messy and very mysterious process known as discipleship. And while not all of us are called to be elders and deacons or pastors and teachers, we are all called to be used by our Lord in this process of discipleship. We are all called to be part of the mission of Christ. You see, Jesus is building his church to last. Jesus has a long-term, multi-generational view of his church, and he calls us as disciples, as those who bear his name, to do the same, to have a big, long-term vision of the church. So we might ask this morning, what is discipleship? Well, discipleship literally means the making of disciples. If you are a Christian, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, it's not optional for you. As a disciple, we are all called to be disciple makers. Now, if we expand that definition just a little bit, we might say that discipleship consists of pointing other people to Jesus through our words and through our actions. Okay? It sounds pretty simple. Jesus Christ, though, must be at the center of whatever it is we call discipleship. Jesus is the beginning and the end of discipleship. He's the origin, he's the fuel, and he's the destination of discipleship. So as we talk about this, and as you talk about it through the coming weeks possibly, if your discussions about discipleship do not center on Jesus Christ, then whatever it is you're talking about or whatever it is you're reading about, it's not true biblical discipleship. In our text before us this morning, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we're going to see, hopefully, that Jesus takes Peter and two other disciples and he begins to mold them and he begins to make them into disciple makers. He wants to teach them something about discipleship. But before they will ever appreciate discipleship, before they will ever have a long-term, multi-generational view of what Jesus Christ is doing in redemption, Jesus must show them three things. First of all, Jesus must invade their worlds. 
Second of all, Jesus must reveal their sin. And thirdly, Jesus must win their hearts. And so if you want to bring it home to us this morning, and if you're looking for three points to kind of frame an outline, these would be the three points. For us, Jesus must do the same. Jesus must invade our worlds. Jesus must reveal our sin. And Jesus must win our hearts. Those things must take place if you and I are ever going to take seriously the task and call of making disciples. Now, early on in the text, a crowd has gathered around Jesus. And this should be no surprise. Jesus' fame was growing. His celebrity status was growing. And human nature being what it always has been, people were curious. They wanted to go out and see Jesus And they started pressing in upon him because they wanted to hear what he had to say. And so Jesus had a problem, and his problem was he was running out of real estate. Jesus was backed up against the lake of Gennesaret, or what was commonly known as the Sea of Galilee. And so as the people were pressing in on Jesus, he stepped into a fishing boat as a solution to the problem. And he stepped into not just any fishing boat, but the fishing boat of one Simon Peter. Now, you and I know that Jesus didn't have to step into a fishing boat. If he chose, he could have just taken a stroll across the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus had other plans. You see, he wasn't just about to invade the boat of Simon Peter. He was about to invade the world of Simon Peter. After Jesus finished teaching the crowds from a seated position, which was common in his day, he gives instruction to Peter to put the boat out into the deep waters. Jesus actually gives two commands, to put the boat out and then to put down the nets. Now, in the original Greek, and this is kind of lost in the English translation, the first command is singular. So he was addressing that to Peter as the captain of the vessel to put the boat out. The second command is plural, and Jesus was addressing that one to the crew on board to put down the nets. In other words, Jesus was addressing everyone in the boat. And when Jesus gives the second command to let down the nets, it's at this point that Peter very respectfully casts doubt on Jesus' suggestion. And he casts doubt on it for two main reasons. The first reason was this. Peter and company had been fishing all night long. Uh, The original language suggests that they were exhausted, that they had worn their fingers down to the bone. Okay, In Peter's mind, he's thinking, look, this is my world. Okay, I'm a professional fisherman. I'm an expert. This is what I know best. And we were fishing all night long, and we found no fish. If fish were there we would have found them, it's pointless to go back out there. That's the first reason why he cast doubt on Jesus' command and why he probably thought it was bordering on the absurd. The second reason is because it was daytime, and you didn't fish in deep waters during the day. Any seasoned fisherman knew this. You fished in deep waters at night, which is why Peter and his crew had fished all night long. We can gather from the language of the text that this wasn't only Peter's boat, but it was also his crew. Peter was the one who was in charge of this operation. But Peter was about to realize that there was someone in that boat 
who outranked him. To prepare Peter for a life of service in the kingdom, to mold him into a disciple maker, Jesus went to a place where Peter was in charge, where Peter thought he knew everything, and he showed him that there is someone who is greater. He showed him that he not only has claims on Peter's nets and his boat and his crew, that he also had claims on Peter's life and even the very Sea of Galilee. Following Jesus Christ means that you and I must be willing to accept the fact that Jesus is often going to take our lives and shift them and pull them in ways that we don't expect, in ways that we don't desire, and in ways that maybe seem absurd to us. To mold us into makers of disciples, Jesus will often remind us that we are not the true captains of our worlds, that we are not the captains of our own vessels, that he is the true owner of every breath that we take and every second that we live. And he does this because he knows that you and I will never take seriously the task of discipleship if we believe that our lives are our own. This truth comes to the forefront when we think about discipling an actual person. You see, we like the idea of discipleship. The idea of discipleship is nice and neat. We can control it and get our minds around it. The idea of discipleship is always cleaner than the reality of discipleship. But when we think about discipling an actual person, then that's when all of a sudden we become busy. There's always something more important to do because discipleship involves the messy task of investing in another person. Many of us have started statements like this. You know, I'd really love to, but... And then you can fill in the blank with whatever reason slash excuse we come up with. It's interesting that we rarely say those same things when it comes to social events whether it's getting together with friends for the season finale of our favorite TV show or going to a college football game or what have you. We always seem to have time for those things. The assumption that is lurking behind the statement that I'd love to, but I really don't have time is the assumption that our lives are our own, that they ultimately belong to us. And Jesus wants to shatter that assumption. He wanted Peter to see that his life wasn't his own, and he wants us to see the same thing. You see, there's always something in our lives that we cling to, that we don't want to release to the lordship of Jesus Christ. There's always some area that we metaphorically wall off from Jesus, and we say, okay, I'll give you 95%, but this 5%, I'm hanging on to this, okay? I'm going to compartmentalize this over here. If we are ever to take seriously the call to discipleship, these areas must be exploded by the lordship of Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian, I can guarantee you one thing. Jesus will get those areas in his crosshairs. He will invade those and he will take them over. And he does that because he loves us, because he cares for us, because we are his, and because he is shaping us to be like him. So in light of this first point, I ask you this morning, what in your life is being walled off from Jesus Christ? 
What area or areas are you not willing to surrender to the Lord of heaven and earth? What places do you believe are yours and not Jesus Christ's? You see, when Jesus invades our worlds, he messes up our worlds. He shows us that we're not in control, but he also does something that can sometimes be painful. And that is he begins to peel back the layers of our hearts. And that brings us to our second point this morning. That if we are to take seriously the task of discipleship, Jesus must reveal our sin. Now, in simple obedience, Peter orders the nets to be let down, however skeptical he might be. And to everyone's astonishment, the catch of a lifetime occurs. In fact, they catch so many fish that the big, deep water nets, and those are the ones that they were using when you went fishing in deep waters, you used the biggest nets that you had. They caught so many fish that those nets began to break and began to fray. And so everybody panics and they call for a second boat and a second boat comes out and they even out the load. They put some of the fish in the second boat and what happens? They both begin to sink. And so all chaos is breaking loose. Nets are fraying and breaking. Boats are sinking. And yet Luke hones our attention not in on the chaos that's going on. He focuses our attention on Peter's reaction to what is happening. And what we see is that Peter is not concerned about the nets. He's not concerned about the great catch. He's not concerned about the sinking boats. All of that has become like white noise to Peter. At this moment, all Peter can think about is that he is in the presence of one who is greater than he. And with that realization, Peter becomes acutely aware of his brokenness, of his sin, of his dirtiness. He realizes that above all else, he is unworthy to be in the presence of this man. You can imagine his thinking. If this man knows exactly where the fish are located, imagine what he knows about me. Imagine what he knows about my thoughts, about my desires, what I do in secret. He knows everything about me. Peter was certain of one thing at that moment. He could not continue to be in the presence of Jesus. In Peter's mind, it didn't compute. The holiness, the omniscience of Jesus and his sinfulness could not fit together. And so he tells Jesus to depart Peter was convinced that this must be the end of the story. His journey with Jesus must end at this point because in his mind, there's absolutely no way that Jesus could use someone as broken, as sinful, as dirty as him. And this is precisely what Satan, the great enemy of the church, wants you and I to believe this morning. Satan's M.O., his mode of operation, is to take something that is true and good in and of itself and to twist it and distort it and pervert it and then advertise it as the real thing. And that's what he does with our sin. He takes something like our sinfulness, which is true, it's true that we're sinful, and he magnifies it to such an extent that our sin seems bigger than God's grace and God's mercy. 
Satan would have us see our unworthiness as the end of the story. Was Peter unworthy to be used by Christ? Yes. Are you unworthy to be used by Christ? Am I unworthy to be used by Christ? Absolutely. All of us are unworthy to be used by Christ, but that is not the end of the story. You see, thankfully, Jesus does not recruit those who are worthy. He is putting together a people full of checkered pasts and broken lives to proclaim him to a lost and dying world. Peter did tell Jesus to depart in this text, but notice that Jesus did not say the same to Peter. Jesus could have banished Peter from the boat and the entire crew, but he did not tell him to depart. The one thing that Peter did not expect to find at that moment was mercy and grace. And that's exactly what he discovered. His awareness of his unworthiness wasn't the end of the story, but was in many ways the beginning of his story. Because from that moment on, Jesus would continue to mold him into a disciple and a disciple maker. To mold us into disciple makers, Jesus not only invades our worlds, he reveals our sin. And he doesn't broadcast when or how this is going to happen. Most often it happens when we least expect it. For Peter, this happened when he had just finished the night shift of his everyday job. You see, Jesus shows us our sin because he knows that's precisely what we don't want to see. We're much more comfortable hiding our sin. We're much more comfortable living in a world full of distraction and deception and fantasy. Because we really don't want to see our enormous need of grace. And that's what Christ is doing. When he shows us our sin, he's not throwing it in our face just to flaunt it in our face. No, he's showing us our sin so that we might see our need of him. And that's exactly what we must see. Because if we don't see our unworthiness, then we will never appreciate grace. And if we don't appreciate grace, then we will never point others to Christ. Instead, you and I will, in some form or fashion, point others to ourselves. When we talk about discipleship, our discipleship will look more like Aesop's fables than Christ crucified. We will talk in moralisms, but we won't talk about grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, He who would learn to serve must first learn to think little of himself. Only he who lives by the forgiveness of his sin in Jesus Christ will rightly think little of himself. He will know that his own wisdom reached the end of its tether when Jesus forgave him. In effect, when Jesus shows us our unworthiness and our sin, he's trying to get us to let our guard down. Because true discipleship cannot happen with our guards up. How will we ever expect other people to talk to us about sin and brokenness if we are unwilling to talk about our own? How can we tell others about grace if we don't see our need of it? We must learn to see ourselves as those who have been rescued by the net of God's grace. Otherwise, we will never take seriously 
the call and mission of making disciples. In Christian history, the rooster has come to symbolize and be associated with the Apostle Peter, uh, the very same man that we're reading about this morning. It's a reminder of Peter's public sin of disowning and betraying Jesus Christ. You can read about that in Luke chapter 22. Now, to some, this would be a very tragic thing, okay, to be known for your public denial of Jesus, to be associated with a symbol that carries that meaning. Yet New St. Peter's Church in Dallas took a different stance with this symbol of the rooster. They actually took the rooster and made it their church logo, but with a twist. The rooster is actually clutching a cross. Now, why in the world would a church have a rooster with a cross as their logo? Because it's a reminder that even though we, like Peter, are filled with much unbelief and sin, we don't despair. We don't despair because we have been bought by Jesus Christ. It's a symbol of grace in the midst of brokenness. It's a reminder that Jesus in Luke 5 was calling Peter and forming him even though he knew that Peter would one day betray him publicly. That Jesus was calling Peter even though he knew that one day Peter would be guilty of racism in the early church. And it's a reminder that Jesus calls people like you and me to be used by him even though he knows all of our baggage all of our sin, all of our brokenness. To mold us into disciple makers, Jesus reveals our sin, but he doesn't leave us to despair. In the place of our shame, he shows us grace, which essentially means that he shows us himself, which brings us to our third and final point this morning, that Jesus must win our hearts. As Peter and company, which, as you can see, included James and John, reached the shore, they didn't bask in the glory of this unbelievable catch. Instead, we read that they left everything and followed after Christ. Now, why would they leave behind a catch like this? These men had just witnessed what was possibly the greatest catch of their lives, I think it's reasonable to assume that some of them probably daydreamed or fantasized about a catch of this size. That if you would have asked them, they probably would have said, a few catches like this and a lot of my practical everyday problems would be solved. And yet, when this catch finally occurs, they leave it behind in a flash. They could have stayed around and gloried in the moment, but a greater glory was in their midst. When Jesus invaded their worlds, they didn't simply get a more accurate picture of themselves. They got a more accurate picture of Jesus. When coming to the conclusion to follow after Christ, these men didn't sit down with a list of pros and cons. They didn't weigh the risks and the rewards. No, they didn't think about it much at all because they had been overwhelmed by Jesus himself. Put simply, These men desired Jesus more than they desired the catch. They counted this great and glorious catch as rubbish compared with following after this man. What happened to these men must happen to us. 
When Jesus invades our worlds, he not only reveals our sin, but he gives us more and more of himself. It's often when he shows us the worst of ourselves that he shows us the best of himself. And he does this in part to prepare us for mission. He does this to mold us into those who will point other people to Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people writing books about discipleship. There are a lot of articles and blog posts about discipleship and a lot of good stuff out there. But at the end of the day, it's all just a pile of dust if our hearts have not been captured by Jesus Christ. As has been said, when it comes to Jesus, it's better to be smitten than smart. It seems odd to us, but discipleship cannot begin with people. The focus must start with loving Jesus Christ himself for the simple reason that a heart that is cold to Jesus Christ will never be warm to other people. A heart that is cold to Jesus Christ will never see the value in investing in someone else's life and trying to point them to Jesus, especially people that we may dread especially people that we may dislike, especially people who are very different from us. In the Middle Ages, maps of the Roman Empire had an interesting designation for the area outside of Roman rule. Uh, The designation basically said that monsters lived there. See, when the Romans moved into an area, they brought with them law and order with a cold, harsh, heavy hand. And that meant that the areas outside of their rule were oftentimes very chaotic. They were perceived as monstrous. What the Romans never brought to a place was grace and love and mercy. They knew nothing of that. But in church history, one man went to one specific area, Ireland, which was considered a monstrous region. And he went to that area because he knew that the monsters needed Love. In other words, the monsters needed Jesus Christ. We know this man as St. Patrick. And he didn't go to those people because they were his people. After all, they weren't his people. The only reason he knew about those people was because he had been kidnapped and sold into slavery. But after he escaped, he went back to them because he had a deep love for them, a love that he described as a stab to the heart. We might wonder, how could a man who had been kidnapped ever desire to return to the place of his former slavery? How could he leave everything in behind and go to those monstrous people? It wasn't national loyalty. It was the fact that in the intervening period of time, his heart had been won over by Jesus Christ. His heart overflowed with a love for Christ so much that that love drew him to follow Jesus, to seek to make disciples of people that he even dreaded. If you and I are ever to see discipleship as an important thing, then our hearts must be won by Jesus Christ. Everything else in our worlds must be seen as rubbish compared to him. Discipleship means a willingness to pour yourself into someone else's life, to get to know them so that you might love them and point them to Christ. 
Does that give you pause? Does it make you afraid? Does it make you doubt? It does me. And I would say if it makes you afraid, if it makes you doubt, if it gives you pause, then you're in good company. Because we see in the text before us this morning that Jesus gives a command to the disciples to not be afraid before he sends them out. Now, we don't know specifically if these disciples had fears and doubts at that particular moment. But the fact that Jesus gave that command to not be afraid shows that Jesus knew that discipleship would often be accompanied by fears and doubts, anxieties and worries. And he speaks into that and he says, do not be afraid. Be encouraged this morning. The one who calls you also equips. He never calls and doesn't equip. You can bank on that. And the great news is he equips you with everything, which is to say he equips you with himself. In closing this morning, I'd like to mention just a couple of practical considerations regarding discipleship. The first one is this, that true discipleship has to be face-to-face, which means that it has to involve conversation and presence. Now, we participate in conversations all the time, and most of those are just superficial conversations about pop culture and college football and what have you. But biblical love and biblical discipleship means that we must be willing to participate in deep and sometimes difficult conversations with people. And these are not fun. They're not going to be fun, but that's part of it. Another thing is that we must be present with people. If we're really going to point someone to Jesus Christ and disciple them, that means that we must get to know them, which means that we must spend time with them. And a lot of times that means simply not talking and listening, being slow to speak and quick to listen, as James tells us. So the first thing is that discipleship must be face-to-face, conversation and presence. And the second is that discipleship is inevitably going to be messy. It's going to be messy because people are involved and people are sinful and people are messy and nobody has it together, even though they may seem like they do. And so as you get to know someone and they get to know you and you go along this path of discipleship, you're going to see their sin and they're going to see your sin. And it is a mess Uh, A few months ago, I was sitting behind this little girl in church and we were having communion and the phrase, the blood of Christ was used. And she said, that's gross. And I thought, it is gross and it's messy. Uh, The cross is messy. But in that mess of sin and blood, God was sovereignly working to bring about the redemption of his people. When things seem chaotic and messy to us, They never seem chaotic and messy to God. There is an order to the chaos because God is sovereign. And it's oftentimes in those tragic and messy situations where God uses us the most to point other people back to him. What does true discipleship look like? The New Testament uses these kinds of words. Admonish, encourage, rebuke, pray for, etc. All of those activities presuppose relationship. 
The Scriptures aren't assuming that we're going to be encouraging and rebuking strangers, but people that we have gotten to know and people who know us. All of these activities presuppose lives that have been conquered by the grace of Christ. Jesus is building His church even this very day, and He is building her to last. He's doing it through people like you and people like me. In other words, He's doing it through a band of misfits who have had our worlds invaded, our sin revealed, and hopefully, by the grace of God, our hearts won by the true catcher of souls. Thanks be to God that he has caught ours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you did not leave us in our sins as you certainly could have. It would not have been unjust for you to do so, but you have not treated us as our sins deserved. You have chosen to show us grace and mercy. I don't have any words for that. You have pursued us through the Lord Jesus, sending him to die for our sins, to be raised from the dead, to ascend into heaven. We we long for, we await his coming Help us to have a passion for other people, for lost souls, for new converts, to long to get to know people so that we might point them to Jesus, so that we might make disciples. We pray that you would continue to invade our worlds, that you would continue to show us our sin, to show us our need of you, and win our hearts more and more each day so that we might love you more and love our neighbor more. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.